Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies. Each episode of our series features a member of the Center or a visiting scholar presenting the fruits of his philosophical research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Christopher Martin, Professor of Philosophy at the Center for Thomistic Studies, giving a paper entitled The Self and the Soul, Aquinas, Enscom, and Authority. This paper, I have already given a version of this here in this venue um, about <coughs> 10 years ago, but it's been radically reworked since then. I'm getting more and more worried about it. Um, apart from anything else, I can't think of anyone who would want to publish it, which is embarrassing. But um, I start from the position that... Um, Quite a lot of people vaguely identify the self with the soul, and I um, think this is definitely not a Thomistic view. But on top of that, I mean, one of the reasons why I want to say this is that this notion of the self as something um, completely distinct from the physical reality. Um, which I take it is not Thomas's view. Thomas thinks of the soul following the Council of Vienne as being the um, as being the substantial form of the body, and therefore the soul is intimately linked with the body. And I think that the idea of a self as something independent of the body, a sort of Pythagorean or Platonic or Cartesian idea of the, of the self. Well, it underlies a lot of confusion that we have at the moment with, for example, the, these questions of gender identity. Um, and I wanted to take a quite short view with this, what I take to be a Thomistic view, that the soul exists and it's closely identified with the uh, nature of the body. But the self doesn't exist that it's just a fiction that there is no such thing as the self as Plato thought or as Descartes thought or as Pythagoras thought some self which is independent of the body and is identified with the real person in some sense um, I have for support here not only the text of Thomas which I have given you there but also um, the support of three distinguished analytical Thomists, as you might call them. Two of them definitely Catholic, Geech and Anscombe, and the third not Catholic, but nevertheless thoroughly, in some ways, thoroughly Thomist, Kenny. They agree with me in taking a reductivist and sceptical view of the concept of the self and of its association with the soul, particularly with the separated soul. Kenny doesn't discuss the separated soul except in passing, um, because he doesn't think it exists but Anscombe and Geach both do. Um, these three can find support in very clear texts of St. Thomas, which um, some of which uh, partially I have reproduced for you in the handout. Uh, St. Thomas thinks that it is only figuratively true to say that I will be a separated soul. And if you identify the I with the self, then um, then the separated soul is not the self. 
However, there is a declaration of the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in 1979, which appears to identify the soul, the separated soul, with self. Um, according to that, it would seem to be true that, literally true, that I say that I will be a separated soul. And the notion of self is apparently used <coughs> in explaining the nature of the separated soul. The problem, I think, seems to arise from the introduction of the notion of self. First of all, I want to clear up the question of um, personal identity. Um, a previous title of this paper was, Is there personal identity between a living human being and a separated soul? And I wanted to argue that that's the wrong way to phrase, frame the question, which is one of the reasons why I've now called it something else, uh, the soul and the self, Anscombe, Aquinas, and authority, because Anscombe is the principal thinker of these, those three, I think. Um, I find that I have on the top of my paper here in front of me uh, a, a title which says, Is it true to say that you will be a separated soul? which is another way of putting it. Um, one possible way to approach the question of the identity of the human person is to try and establish what is personal identity as such and then apply the notion to the human person. Um, indeed, it might be thought that the best way of approach would be to first ident examine identity as such, then apply that to the identity of the person and then apply that to the human person. I don't think that either of these methods has any value whatsoever. Um, people do discuss the notion of identity as such within uh, analytic philosophy. Most authors, for example, Wiggins, regard identity as an absolute notion, and um, Kripke uh, amusingly um, says, I don't wish to discuss whether identity is an absolute notion. I'm just going to talk about an absolute notion of identity. I can call it schmidentity if you like. Geach practically on his own regards identity as a relative notion. For A to be identical with B, A must be the same F as B for some reading of F uh, as a kind term. I don't know whether Geach definitely had theological ideas in mind when he said this, but it would seem to be a, there seems to be a clear Trinitarian reason for the position that he maintains. One of the key notions involved in that of identity is Leibniz's law. If a and B are identical, then everything which is true of A must be true of B. Um, but while a Christian wants to maintain, in some sense, that the Son is identical with the Father, a Christian also has to affirm that while the Father begets, the Son does not beget. Uh, a Christian must also say, while the Son suffers, the Son does not suffer. If we hold a relative notion of identity, there's no difficulty here. We can say that the Father is the same God as the Son, but not the same person. And so therefore, um, A is the same F as B, but is not the same G as B. As one of the fathers of the church put it, the three persons of the Blessed Trinity are Alos, Kai Alos, Kai Alos, someone and someone and someone, but not Alo, Kai Alo, Kai Alo, not something and something and something. Even apart from theological considerations, I think that Thomas would ag agree with Geach, or rather that each is agreeing with Thomas. For Thomas, we know that ens et idem convertuntur, 
And we also know that quad lipid esse est secundum formam aliquem. From this it would follow that omni idem est secundum formam aliquem. Um, every identity is according to some form. Thus identity for Thomas would be relative. Well, so much for the notion of identity as such. I think that it's um, an empty notion. What about the notion of the identity of a person <coughs> as such? I think that this notion is almost equally problematic. Um, consider the, the identity of a game as such. Is there any such thing? Is there, to put it another way, any relevant such? And I would say not. Different games are identified or made to be the game that they are by different criteria. For example, the identity of some games require identity of players, while this does not seem to be the case for other games. Some games are limited in time, others are not, and so on. Hence, there is no such thing as the identity of a game as such, only the identities of different games of different kinds. Um, we might make a parenthesis <coughs> of a distinction between diachronic identity, identity through time, and synchronic identity, identity or difference at a given time. Um, these two may easily come apart. In a living thing, diachronic identity depends on form, while synchronic identity depends on matter. It's also perhaps worth, worth noting that for the divine persons there is no diachronic identity, no identity through time, as they do not exist in time. Perhaps the same is true also of angelic persons who are not in time also, though they are or have been subject to some change. To a Thomist, these remarks might suggest that identity is an analogous notion, which may very well be true, but it doesn't help us very much. It is fairly clear that the prime analogous <coughs> in the order of being are the divine persons, but I've also maintained that they are um, the prime analogous in the order of knowledge as well. The notion of person, which is not to be found in Greek philosophy, was forged in Trinitarian theological disputes. But if the divine persons are the prime analogous in both the order of being and in that of knowledge, and they are also unknowable by us in this life. The use of the idea of analogy here seems to have little use. I want to suggest that any time we want to discuss the notion of personal identity, we should always explicitly relativize the notion. We should discuss the identity of a divine person or of an angelic person or of a human person. This is not an ad hoc proposal. There are many notions which do not determine criteria of identity and whose identity we cannot therefore discuss. We cannot discuss the identity of a thing as such, or an event as such, although there may be many things or events, rivers, mountains, lumps of gold, statues, words, kisses, blows, whose identity we can discuss. It would seem that we cannot identify a soul except in terms of what thoughts it has, or has had, or in terms of whose soul it has been or will be. The identity of the soul therefore would turn out to be derivative from that of the human being whose thoughts these were or will be, and of the body that can give expression to these thoughts. But Thomas tells us explicitly that the separated soul is not a human person. It is thus a fortiori not the same human person as the living human person whose soul it is. Um, if you look at the first four quotations uh, on the self and the soul, <coughs> Um, you can see that I think that I've not misrepresented Geach, Anscombe, and Kenny. Geach says, 
Thinking consists in having a series of thoughts which can be counted out off discreetly. Um, the first, the second, the third, which if complex must occur with all their elements present simultaneously, which do not pass into one another by gradual transition. Okay. Um, that claims that thoughts, which are the work of souls, clearly, rather than bodies, do not exist in time, whereas the body does exist in time. Anscombe says, I is neither a name nor another kind of expression whose logical role is to make a reference at all, therefore denying the existence of the self. Geach says, it appears to me that this use of I in soliloquy is a degenerate use and there is no question of it referring to anything, agreeing there with Anscombe. And Kenny puts it most clearly, by self one might mean Cartesian consciousness, the feature that is common to and peculiar to the contents of the private world of introspection. This, he says, is a piece of philosophical nonsense. Secondly, consciousness may mean the exercise of our capacities for perception. Consciousness in this sense is shared by cats and dogs and cows and sheep, and therefore not specific to the human person. Thirdly, consciousness means self-consciousness. It presupposes the possession of language. One cannot think about oneself without being able to talk about oneself, and one cannot know how to talk about oneself without knowing how to talk. Thomas, however, tells us in some of the first part question, sec first part, second part of the second part, question 83, article objection, article 11, objection 5, and the answer to objection 5, that um, the soul of Peter is not Peter. It seems that in his reply to the objection, he grants this premise. You can see the quotation there. If the separated soul of Peter is not Peter, then it is not true to say that CM will be a separated soul. In which case, is it true to say that I will be a separated soul? That's the problem. Anscombe um, points to the difficulty here that in Cartesian grounds, you can doubt that I am CM or doubt that I am this body which is another way of referring to CM but you cannot doubt that I am I I therefore according to Anscombe doesn't mean the living body it doesn't mean the human being named CM although of course it does have a use in which um, it is so if I say I am sitting or I am speaking then uh, this can be verified by checking whether the living body called CM is sitting or speaking. But the soliloquial sense, as she calls it, the sense of which you can be used in soliloquy and can be used to, in the context of Cartesian doubt, is th that expression does not refer to anything. And according to Thomas here, it doesn't refer to the soul either. Later, or elsewhere rather, Thomas tells us in Commentary on the Sentences, Book 3, Distinction 5, Question 3, Article 2, tells us explicitly that the separated soul is not a person. That's the next quotation. Um, the separated soul cannot be said to be a person, because although it's separated, it is not a part, not actually a part, but it, uh, though 
This is because, although when it is separate it is not a part in act, nevertheless it has a nature to be a part. In these texts, Thomas clearly takes it that a personal name is the name of a person and that a human person is a human being, that is, a composite of form and matter. Peter is not his soul. Peter stands for the Apostle Peter, now dead, again to live again after the Last Judgment. But his separated soul, which does exist, I suppose, in some sense at present, is not, uh, is not named by the name Peter, except figuratively. A separated soul is form alone and not a composite, and therefore is not a human being, and therefore is not a human person, and therefore is not a person at all. Therefore the soul cannot be the same person as the human being since the soul is not a person at all. At um, 1 Corinthians 15, lecture 2, Thomas says that the soul is not I, even more strongly. Um, it is clear that a human being naturally desires his or her own salvation. But the soul is a part of the human body, not the whole of the human being, and my soul is not I. Hence, even if the soul achieves salvation in another life, I do not do so, nor does any human being. If you want to, you can dispute whether this uh, first commentary in 1 Corinthians is authentic or not. It appears to be a record made of lectures by Aquinas towards the end of his life, not made by Reginald de Pepino, though I think we could probably trust to get Thomas's lectures right, um, and not made, not corrected either, as some other reportaciones are by Thomas. So you can doubt whether this text is authentic. However, there are other texts which I mentioned below. Um, not just the 1 Corinthians text, there's a commentary on uh, the Romans, there's a commentary on these sentences, twice more, and a commentary on the Questio Disputata de Anima, where Thomas keeps saying the same thing, that the soul is not the self. Um, he says that the I... Sorry, let me, let me go back to my text. Thomas clearly takes it in his uh, in the first passage quoted from the commentary on the sentences and in the comment passage commented on passage in the commentary on the first Corinthians, which incidentally come pretty much at the beginning and at the end of his career, I may say. So um, it's not uh, obiter dictum. Um, he takes it that the word I refers to the person speaking, that is, to the human being, that is, in my case, to CM. This person is a human being and is not the same person as CM's separated soul, because CM's separated soul is not a person. It would seem to be that his attitude would be to deny that, strictly speaking, I will be a separated soul. But this seems a little extreme, perhaps. Isn't it true to say that at some future time, say when my youngest students are grandparents, I will be dead? And if dead, why not that I, <coughs> that I will be a corpse? And if I can say that I will be a corpse, may I not equally well say that I will be a separated soul in purgatory or enjoying the blissful vision of God in heaven or in hell? 
since I can say that I will be a corpse um, and precisely a corpse is a human being with the soul missing can't I also say that the soul that I will be the soul which will survive Thomas will admit this language I think is figurative he certainly admits that we address St Peter by name um, as the church does and not by the soul of soul of St Peter not by the style of soul of St Peter pray for us in other cases speaking if not of the separated soul at least of the soul as distinguished from or opposed to the body um, he says that usage, such usages are figurative this is the later supersententious um, uh, quotations um, we have to reply to the first objection to say that that way of speaking is synecdochic that's a word you don't often come across synecdochic I don't think my um, my uh, spell checker will allow for that um, what it does is put the principal part that is to say the soul instead of the whole human being and this mode of speaking is common in Holy Scripture and among philosophers. As the philosopher says in the ninth book of the Nicomachean Ethics, that the whole man is said to be the intellect. In the same way, also, the whole city is said to be the uh, ruler of the city. If what is applied here to the unseparated soul can be said of the separated soul, and it will be true to say figuratively that CM will be a separated soul, at least as true as it will be to say that CM will be a corpse, perhaps truer as Thomas thinks that the soul is the principal part of the body, um, the, the, the living human being, whereas what remains as a corpse um, is the less principal part. The quotation from On the Romans is particularly striking, where Thomas actually speaks of li ego, meaning the word I, and specifies what figure of speech is being used. Since we say it's being used figuratively, he actually here specifies that the figure of speech being used is synecdoche, the use of the word for the whole I being used to signify the part, the intellect. The previously cited quotations use another form of synecdoche in which word the word for the part, the soul, is used to signify the whole human person. It seems then that figuratively by synecdoche, Peter's soul can be called Peter and my soul can be called I. That is, if the word I works like a name does. And that's where we run into the problems with Anscombe. Anscombe holds that some uses of the word I do work like the name does that some cases you can substitute the name for I and <coughs> whatever was true in one sentence remains true in the other but not in the soliloquial use there are many sentences with I as subject which have the same truth conditions as the other similar sentences with CM as the subject examples which are currently true would be I am seating, I am speaking I am a British male human being in his 60s. But there is a different use, which Anscombe 
is discussing in her paper, The First Person, which she calls the soliloquial views, soliloquial use, which are different. It might as well be called a Cartesian use, but the use clearly exists independently of Descartes calling attention to it. In this sense of I, the soliloquial use, it makes sense to doubt, as Descartes pointed out, whether I am CM is true, or whether any of the other I sentences mentioned above, I am seated, I am speaking, are true. But it doesn't make sense for me to doubt I am I. Hanscom, in her famous but obscure paper, the um, first person, proposed that this latter use of I, the soliloquial use, should not be construed as, or as, uh, as a proper name, or as anything analogous to a proper name. But here I fear she and I may run up against what appears to be authoritative church doctrine. There is a letter of the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith of the 17th of May 1979, which appears to say, well, you've got the French there. My translation is, there is no Latin text that I can discover. The Church affirms the survival and subsistence after death of a spiritual element which is endowed with consciousness and will so that the human self subsists. Le moi humain subsists. Le moi, inverted commas, quote marks, subsists. The Church uses the word soul consecrated by scripture and tradition to designate this element. Well, I take it just as in clarifying that, that the word conscience which is ambiguous in French between conscience in English and consciousness in English, here means the latter. And that consciousness here means, as often in French, self-consciousness. Okay? In English we can easily speak, as Kenny does, of a cat or a dog's being conscious of something, and therefore we can speak of its consciousness. What is distinctive of human beings is self-consciousness. Okay, the Kenny quotation is relevant there. Um, Kenny thinks that the... that. Um, Self-consciousness is real, but it's um, simply an aspect of being a language user. I also take it that the word um, subsist or subsists, because the French is ambiguous between the indicative and the subjunctive, is an echo of uh, question 75, article 5, utrum anima subsistat. And the meaning of subsist is that it exists in the mode of a substance as an individual subject of actions, not, for example, as an accident exists. This letter of the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith I find rather curious. It is not cited by the Catechism of the Catholic Church in 1994, nor taken up in, neither cited nor referred to in either of the places one would expect it in Numbers 363 and 365, which deal with the human soul. Um, Father Huang, the other day, drew attention, my student, drew attention to the fact that it seems to be referred to in the glossary appended to the Catechism online by the USCCB. Um, soul, the spiritual principle of human beings. The soul is the subject of human consciousness and freedom. Soul and body together form one unique human nature. The um, stressed emphasis there is my own. Um, the fact that it speaks of consciousness and freedom 
it seems to me to be very close to what the sacred congregation of the doctrine of the faith means by um, conscience et volonté um, <coughs> seems to me to suggest that this that they are referring to this um, I find the text curious because it's not very clear which expression is supposed to be explanatory of which is the congregation explaining the spiritual the scriptural and traditional term soul by means of the modern philosophical term le moi or is it the other way around um, I would I would rather hate to believe though I find it difficult not to believe that the sacred congregation of the doctrine of faith is trying to explain the um, scriptural term in terms of a term of modern philosophy I, you know, I, I would like not to believe that but I find it hard to believe otherwise if someone can help me I will be delighted at least I find a certain inconsinity if that's the word I'm looking for that's another one which the spell checker doesn't have incongruity unfittingness lack of match between the doctrine of Aquinas according to which the soul can only be called I or ego or moi or le moi or the self in a figurative sense and this teaching in which le moi seems to be in some sense constitutive of what we call the soul or perhaps that the soul is constitutive of what we call le moi or in English the self that might work better um, there are several possibilities one we can claim that the Anscombe Aquinas and Anscombe texts flatly contradict the teaching of the sacred congregation of the doctrine of the faith document um, <coughs> Uh, the latter clearly regards what it calls le moi as something real and existing indeed subsisting and the very use of the expression le moi seems to imply that this whatever it is is the object to which the name I refers uh, Anscombe flatly denies that I is a, is a name and that it refers to anything or are we to appeal to our distinction between two senses of I and claim that the solid soliloquial use of I is indeed not a use of a proper name with an object to which it refers but that the other use may be <coughs> if so we still have something of a contradiction between the congregation's view that there is such a thing as le moi referred to by the expression moi and Anstom's view that the soli at least the soliloquial I has no such reference <coughs> perhaps however it's not necessary to see insist on such level of detail we can preserve both Anscombe's insight and proper submission to the teaching of the sacred congregation of the doctrine of the faith um, by asking whether the separated soul is or is not or is or can be uh, a user of the soliloquial I if it is then if it is then presumably it has self-consciousness since according to Anscombe and Kenny this is all that self-consciousness means that the soliloquial I can be used and this may be all we need to be faithful both to Anscombe and Aquinas on the one hand and the authoritative pronouncement of the sacred congregation of the doctrine of the faith on the other Anscombe gives the example of someone subjected to sensory deprivation who can clearly think I won't let myself get into this situation again but as she points out as she points out there should be another page yes <laughs> as she points out 
the quotes I and quotes myself here have no reference to the state of her body, which is ex hypothesi unknown to her in a state of sensory deprivation. Um, there would seem to be no reason why the separated soul should not have similar soliloquial thoughts. Um, in favour of this is the fact that self-consciousness is, as Kenny points out, a linguistically based phenomenon and thus a rational phenomenon. He says one cannot think about oneself without being able to talk about oneself and one cannot know how to talk about oneself without knowing how to talk. A dog may think that he is about to be fed, but without language he cannot think that he is thinking that he is about to be fed. Is self if self-consciousness is thus intimately connected with language, then one can do justice to the tradition which regards self-consciousness as an essential element of human mentality, without explicitly including it in the definition. That's a quote from Kenny. This seems to give us a simple reconciliation, I hope. Self-consciousness depends on language use, but language use depends on intellect. The separated soul is essentially a survival of the intellect. The separated soul, like the person in the sensory deprivation tank, is disconnected from all bodily stimuli and reduced to intellect and will. Nevertheless, as a rational user of human language, he or she can use language, human language correctly, and they can, therefore can also use the soliloquial use of I. More, indeed, since any use of I in those circumstances will ex hypothesis not have any reference to any living body, the soliloquial I will be the only use of, of I available to it. I suggest that this condition is sufficient for us to attribute self-consciousness and thus claim that even when the soul is separated, le moi humain subsiste. The human self subsists. More briefly, we can say that I or moi can stand for CM. This is St. Thomas's usual non-soliloquial usage. But CM can stand, albeit figuratively, for CM's soul. Can we therefore conclude that even on St. Thomas's principles, I or moi can stand for CM's separated soul? This would enable us to accept both points of view without bothering about the difference between soliloquial and non-soliloquial uses. The resurrected human being body and soul, will presumably be able to use I just as we use it now. I take it that this means that such a person will be able to use I about his or her thoughts between death and the resurrection. These would include I was judged, I underwent purgation, or I enjoyed the blissful vision of God, or I was punished by being excluded from the blissful vision of God. Also, I was a separated soul, I was dead. Also, as a matter of fact, by the same kind of figurative language, I was a corpse. It's worth noticing that the risen Christ, Keach makes this point somewhere, in the Apocalypse says, Behold, I died and yet I live. Literally, the Greek used, um, possibly because of the lack of an imperfect tense of the Greek verb to die, actually says, Not I died, but behold, I, came, I became a corpse. Or perhaps, if the English can be admitted, Behold, it used to be the case that I became a corpse. Necros. <coughs> All these claims are just as true as the claims which St. Thomas would admit that the currently living person can say that I will judge, I will be judged, I will be dead, I will become a corpse, I will be a separated soul. 
perhaps we should also maintain, I will be both a corpse and a separated soul, both true, according to St. Thomas, only figuratively. Does any of this imply that at some time between death and resurrection the soul could have been thinking, I am being judged, and the like? We are, I think, entitled to query both the phrase, at some time, and the use of the continuous presence tense. Certainly for a mere pure thinker, a mere subject of intellect and will, there is no question of time, if Geech is right. Thoughts occur discreetly and in serial order. There is no time relation between them or within them. Moreover, thoughts do not take time to occur. They are present all at once or not at all. There is no room for describing the actions of pure intellect and will by means of any continuous tense. I am doing this. It's not a process which is going on. Of more general interest might be to point out that there is logical room for the supposed phenomenon we are trying to describe or account for. Moore's paradox is well known and a wide generality, but it is impossible to say truly, it is raining but I don't believe it, or I don't believe it is raining but it is. However, it is perfectly possible for another person to say of me, it is raining but he doesn't believe it. And it's also possible for me at some future time to say it was raining but I didn't believe it. Perhaps in the same way it is perhaps possible that at no time will I be able to say I am being judged or I am being purified of my sins. Though at some time further in the future I might be able to say I have been judged or I have been purified of my sins. This seems to suggest that we do not need to have recourse to any ad hoc piece of philosophy to account what would otherwise be, at the very least, a mysterious story and, at worst, a contradiction. <clears throat>